Namaste, everyone. Happy Shivaratri. Yeah, it's a big day. Um, is everything coming through okay? Audio, video, the classics? Okay, cool. Wow, it's a big holiday. This is one of the biggest um, in the sort of the Hindu pantheon, and it's by far the biggest uh, Shiva holiday there is. And uh, being a Kashmir Shaivite tradition, um, this is a, this is a, it's a powerful moment for us. There's a lot of potential in this holiday and in this celebration. Don't you love that uh, holidays for us mean practicing? Isn't that like the best part? Um, that we get to actually like dive really deep into our practice and come together as a Sangha to do that. It's just uh, it's, it's the best way I could imagine. It's almost like what the definition of holiday should be. Um, and so tonight, we're going to explore the story of Shivaratri and unpack it a little bit philosophically to give us a, little, give us a foundation uh, to allow it to integrate more easily into the work that we focus on every day in our practice um, and to sort of show you the, the foundational aspects um, how this story ties into our work. All right, without further ado. And then of course we're gonna practice a lot. I forgot to mention that part. So I hope this story and this philosophy takes up a small chunk of our time together. And of course, uh, more importantly, it's gonna set us up to do some really meaningful practice and to make the most of, of this holiday as practitioners. So maybe some of you have heard this story before. Maybe for some, this could be your first time hearing the story, in which case I am honored to be the one to tell it to you. Um, but the story begins with a huntress darting through the forest in hot pursuit of her game. The chase is all-encompassing, okay? Her vision narrows. It engrosses all of her mind and senses tracking sprinting silently stalking hour after hour and then in a quiet moment she feels a chill across her back and she notices that she's squinting and realizes that the light is fading just a little bit and for someone so in tune with these natural elements, all that happens in just a split second. And she suddenly looks up, not quite sure how long she's been at it. Familiar with this forest, having grown up here, but not familiar with this part of the forest. And so, with the sun setting, and with the pursuit at a standstill. She has no choice but to climb into the nearest tree to seek cover for the night. All she's got with her is just a little bit of bread in the satchel and about a cup of water left in her canteen. It's going to be a long night. you know. She knows that at this point. How did this happen again? She thinks to herself. Darn it. It's not the first time she has slept in a tree. It's not the first time this has occurred. 
and we pause the story for a moment. Our daily pursuits, okay, you and me, they might not be exactly like that of the huntress, right? But all of us are definitely chasing after something from dawn till dusk. So Mukta tells us that what we're chasing after is our happiness and what we're running from is things that cause us pain. And these occupy our mind and our senses constantly and wholly. And what's funny is in our culture, this approach to the pursuit is actually applauded, you know, giving 110% on the field or losing yourself in your part uh, on the stage, no matter the consequences, right? Well, the yogic tradition has a very different perspective on, on how to pursue our game. It tells us that the happiness we're chasing after, whether it's in the form of a, a paycheck or it's in the form of a waterfall, they're saying that the thing you're chasing after is an illusion you're chasing after a covering of Shiva so you might say in our story instead of a real bunny you're chasing a chocolate covered bunny and this is all of our pursuits even the really important ones because although these pursuits appear to be what we're chasing after the happiness we're seeking never lasts as long as we wish it would. So it's this chocolate bunny that tastes great in the moment but does leave a part of you hungry. And you hear this from Babaji constantly that these pursuits are transient. And that's why the, the sutras tell us exactly this. And it's a long quote. I'm going to read it. Feel free to read along. The, re, the results of your God consciousness being fenced in by the five coverings is that you act in a limited way. You know in a limited way. You love in a limited way. You live in a limited way. And possess in a limited way consequently in your world of illusion where you remain filled with insecurity and fear these limitations are your bondage here being completely dependent on that elusive energy of knowledge and being without real knowledge you are continuously doing right or wrong accepting rejecting and so, being completely entangled in that fence, you become just like a beast. So because of the coverings of Shiva, the chocolate coating that covers Shiva from us, Maya, all of our pursuits are transient. And when we pursue something that's transient constantly, we get caught up in it and cause us suffering. And ultimately, 
Those pursuits define our reality. If you're chasing after a limited form of Shiva, you become a limited form of Shiva. And that's the definition of suffering, according to like the science of yoga. And like the huntress, uh, a lot of the time, these pursuits, they do leave us a little lost at the end of the day. You know, a little drained, a little, a little zapped. Um, shoulders held tight with a little mild level anxiety, right? You know, scrolling through the phone feeds, hungry for satisfaction. It's not that having a tough day or having challenges is what makes us like a beast tangled in a fence. It's that our clinging to these limited things continuously pushes us into this fence and entangles us which is to say that the suffering that we mostly encounter like this huntress in the tree that night uh, according to the yogi tradition is mostly coming from our own hands something that when you're in the tree you definitely don't want to hear about but when you're out of the tree it can be helpful to reflect upon back with the huntress. Time passes for the huntress in the tree. There's the physical discomfort of the tree. <laughs> There's the subtle and ever-present grip of the chill that's in the air. And there's the persistence of an empty stomach. The night is long. Slowly, the light begins to add color to the leaves around her. And after that, a little too slowly, warmth. She sits up in the tree. And the first thing she reaches for is her canteen. She knew she would need to, to save that cup of water in the bottom for the trek home. And it was really challenging to not drink it at night. But we had to make that decision. But now it's morning. She's about to make her trek home and she deserves that sip. Picking up the canteen, her heart breaks in just the, the moment of lifting it off of the tree limb. She can feel the weight is different. And she notices a darker spot on the bark under the lid. And her heart actually just skips, pauses, it's just too much. And it all occurs in just the instant of lifting it. The lid was a little loose and all night it dripped one drop at a time silently around the curve of the branch, pooling at its base, and then falling perfectly down one drop at a time from dusk till dawn. She actually looked and saw the last drop fall slowly from the tree and her eyes followed it down to the shiny spot at the base of the tree where it had fallen all night. She was motion, motionless for a moment. There's really nothing that could be done.
though many of us have not been in that exact situation, <laughs> I've not. We've all had dire straits like this huntress. We've all had moments when we were hanging on desperately to uh, a scrap of something that represented uh, how we were going to get through something. And, oh, is there a question? One second. Okay, cool. And thanks for the confirmation on audio. Sorry, that's not going well for you, Yogita. Um, we've all had this moment where we hang on to this scrap, and then that scrap gets taken from us. You know, it's the last straw, right? And what's amazing is that when that last thing you were gripping onto is taken away, you're left looking at your own two hands. And then your, your vision sort of zooms out, and you, you have this realization of just where you are because you're not looking ahead anymore. You're not thinking, planning, or scheming. You're forced into the present. And that is actually a moment um, that brings a lot of us to our practice, to the practice, to the ashram. You know, most people come to the ashram not because they've experienced the bliss of the inner self and are curious about how they can experience that a little more. Most of us come to the ashram because uh, you're tired of suffering and you would like a, a way out of it. I can raise my hand on that one. As many of you probably would. And Babaji tells us that even within our practice that in our spiritual work we have major realizations at the death or the loss of a closely held ideal. That transformation and realization usually occur when an illusion is stripped away, not when it's added to. Of course, this is in accord with how we look at Shiva or reality itself. We usually aren't willing to peel away that last layer, right? Some, the universe has to do it for us. The funny thing is, is that these kind of sacrifices seem so terrible in the moment, like for this huntress or for you and us. But in hindsight, we realize that the exchanges, it's so amazing and it's anything but horrible. It's quite the opposite. It's like Babaji's quote where he says, that the very things we cling to in life are the things that are causing us to suffer. And how Swami Rujananda tells us that we're literally trading in the things that poison us, we're giving those away, and we're getting back the things that nourish us. And so it's this incredible exchange, but your attachment to the things are what you're experiencing the loss of. We all know this quote from Shambhavananda, from Babaji, and it's a powerful one. I'll just read through it. It's as though you're holding on to a big anchor at the bottom of the ocean. All you need to do is let go and you'll rise up to the top. But we like our anchor and we're very attached to it and we put time and energy into creating our persona, identity and limitations, which are the building blocks of our anchor. Our life has literally become a process of building and hanging on to this anchor. 
spiritual growth is the total annihilation of that process. On the one hand, it seems silly that you would not let go of the anchor. On the other hand, letting go of it is the most terrifying prospect in that moment. He says this is the nature of surrender, and it has to do with opening up to your limitations and releasing them. And so our huntress has her anchor stripped away. She climbs down the tree. She quietly rocks, walks around its base, suddenly a lot more present than she was a moment ago, with nothing left to limit her. And she finds an unfamiliar sight, an oval stone sitting in a triangular base with small offerings placed around it. This is a sacred tree, it ends up. This is an ancient site um, that has been uh, kept alive through puja and worship of this Shiva Lingam for hundreds of years. There's a visceral reaction in her stomach when she sees the offerings. Uh, and she's almost like snapped back into like samsara with it. Because suddenly there's my hope is these little, these foods that are placed on the lingam. But before she even has to go through that, that should I or shouldn't I, a mighty wind <laughs> sprints through the forest like a herd of a thousand gazelles coming down from the north. And the crown of her head feels as though someone is pulling her up by, the, by her hair gently. And in that moment, her hunger fades, her thirst quenches, and her vision is clear. She's just suddenly and completely present. And in that moment, a divine being appears. And there's nothing in her that questions it. It seems so clear. It's Shiva. Blue skin, dreadlocked hair piled high like a crown. A silent serpent wrapped around the neck and the shoulders and a slight smile that radiates for miles. The death of this huntress's closely held ideal, her canteen. The taking of that, the dripping all night of the water from the tree had dropped perfectly onto the crown of the Shiva Lingam that was at the base of this tree. One drop at a time, in perfect succession. Shiva was delighted by whoever this practitioner was. The fact that they had made a cup of water into an eight-hour puja was a sign that they were truly humble truly devoted and truly focused. And Shiva was so excited to meet this devotee. Before she could even open her mouth to obviously ruin the experience, before that could even happen, Shiva offered her not one, not two, but three boons. And of course, you maybe have heard that word or not heard that word before. A boon is a gift, a spiritual gift from above. Luckily, Shiva's presence had uplifted her out of the tugs of the physical dimension, or she probably would have said, like, food, water, shelter, you know, and blown those boons. But his very presence had lifted her to a lighter realm where she could sense and feel um, a more astral capacity of these boons. What was peculiar is that nothing occupied her mind in that moment, yet she was not asleep or distracted. She felt completely present, and in that presence, a deep sense of contentment 
and even a slight smile crossed her face. And it had been a long time since she had smiled for no reason. And in fact, when she thought about it, she didn't even know if she'd ever done that. And so we all grow up with these stories about genies and lamps, right? And we all know how that story plays out. You know, the wish that you wish for ends up being your greatest vice, right? It ends up being the obstacle, the thing that gobbles you up and consumes you. Well, the Shiva Sutras talk about this because it's not a fairy tale. It's a reality for practitioners. When we do our practice, it's easy to get sucked into the horizontal aspects of a practice. Well, I'm going to do a lot of mantra. Or I'm going to do it fast, you know, or I'm going to sing loud, you know, um, etc. I'm going to breathe deep. All those, all those things that could distract us. And they all cause us to miss the point. Similarly, when we do a practice to have a certain outcome, Babaji was just saying last week that that can limit our practice. That we want to just practice to grow. We want to practice to grow with nothing else, just growth. It should be our only goal. Of course, these things motivate us. You know, for example, when my mom was really sick, it pushed me to do Medicine Buddha from a much deeper place than I'd ever done before. And it was very powerful, right? So those things can be motivators in our life, but we have to use them as motivation to find a real place inside. And so the Shiva Sutras obviously agree. In fact, the Shiva Sutras, the commentary by Shemaraja from a thousand years ago, actually cites a previous uh, sutra, the Lakshmi Kalanava Tantra. It's not a word I say all the time. And it says that the one who's directed towards these limited yogic powers is carried away from the consciousness of Lord Shiva and that that individual is not capable of experiencing Shiva's nature, true nature. So the wish becomes the obstacle, right? And we know that, we've seen the movie, <laughs> both on the screen and in our life. Similarly, Patanjali tells us, through self-inquiry, the practitioner gains insight, but eventually all that logic has to come to an end in bliss, the experience. And that that is the comprehension of yoga. So as we're nearing the end of the story, we ask ourselves, what is the wish for infinite wishes? Right? That is sort of the, the question that we have to ask ourselves. And Swami Rujananda once said, you know, that when he went to India, the enlightenment he found was not a heaven realm sitting around drinking tea, but rather the, the enlightenment he found was the knowledge of how to work. And the sutras tell us that over and over, this pure knowledge, that's what we're seeking, this, this, this tool, this capacity. And so the greatest boon is the opportunity to practice, having a practice to do, and then having others to practice with. That's what we should wish for. And that is the wish we've already been granted. Just look around in the room that we're in right now. You know, we have a Sangha. We have the teachings. We have the teacher. It's all here, ready for us. We've already met the genie. 
we've already accidentally somehow each one of us slept in a tree one night accidentally made offerings to a lingam below them and was granted the boon that has landed you in the position you're in in this very moment each one of us has been the huntress and that's exactly why you're here none of us truly earned these three jewels i didn't you look at yourself the day you come to the ashram you're not in your highest state <laughs> you didn't you might feel like you earned it but a lot of grace and so we're all the huntress and we've already received the boon and so shivaratri is not about necessarily doing practice for another boon shivaratri is a time set aside to realize the boon you've already been given and it's sitting right in front of us right now and so let's learn how to use this boon let's work with it let's use it um, and so we're gonna do some mantra together of course so we'll be doing Om Namah Shivaya, getting a lot of repetitions in. Uh, absolutely feel free, by the way, to, to stretch out and move around right now if you want to really sink deep into stillness. Sometimes you got to move your body first. And we'll do this for a while, of course. And then we'll sit silently and repeat it silently. And then we'll even have some time set aside to do a little RT, and, uh, and that'll wrap us up. So thanks for all of your attention. I hope that was a fun story.
we've heard that the microcosm within us is very expansive, bigger than the world outside of us. Your voice, when you repeat the mantra, is only so loud, can only penetrate so far. But your inner voice that you use to repeat the mantra silently, you can feel how this can ring through the whole universe inside of you. Hear this mantra on the inside with each breath and feel its expansiveness. Let your mind be as empty as the huntress's canteen and fill that emptiness with mantra. Let yourself relate to the mantra on a personal level. Let yourself become Shiva, neither male nor female, just this radiant blue skin in this deep deep stillness, this deep, deep focus, repeating the mantra as Muktananda says, as if it were your own name, because it is.
and we'll take the last couple minutes of our time together to continue to chant the name of Shiva, except this time in the form of kirtan, in the form of a song, the words of which are on the screen. So I'll do it call and response style, and I'll call the line, and then you can you can sing whenever you want. You're muted, but <laughs> you can also sing when Satyam's repeating the line back. And it's the first verse from the Shiva Arati that we do um, after the Yagya ceremony.
take the last moment to just offer up the energy of our practice vertically to offer it up to the purest through the crown of the head just letting that energy sort of rise up and through the gratitude be stored allowing it to rain down on us as it will, as it wishes. Taking a moment to visualize Babaji and his radiant smile and his state of being. And then bring your awareness back to your heart. And as Babaji concluded a few satsangs ago, even back down to the navel and just let yourself arrive namaste and thank you all for letting me be a part letting us be a part of your holiday Mashivaya. And I hope you have a wonderful night for those of you who are staying up all night. Who's staying up yeah. all night? Is anyone staying up all night? Yeah. Really? <laughs> There's some debate happening.